have a seat. Today's scripture reading, we come to the end of the life of Abraham in Genesis chapter 25. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Madan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letashim, and Lemumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanok, Abida, and Elda. These were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre. The fields that Abraham purchased from the Hittites, there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahairoi. This is the word of the Lord. Nick had some names this morning. <laughs> that is part of Genesis, isn't it? The genealogies and the family names. And the older you go back in history, the harder the names seem to get to uh, pronounce. So thanks, Nick, for going for it today and uh, reading that passage to us. Well, we come to the end of the life of Abraham. I've been contemplating this week how God has used this portion of Genesis in a timely way in our congregation. Uh, so much upheaval this year. I, I think it's been just so challenging and engaging and encouraging and, and refreshing to go on this journey of the life of Abraham and how God called him out and, and took him on this journey of increasing faith. God called him to take big steps of faith and trust and obedience. And we've been called to take some big steps of faith this year as a church or in our own personal lives. And I know even this last year, we've started to feel a bit more like a called out people who are asked by faith to sojourn here as we eagerly await a heavenly home. Somebody this morning said to me, um, can you pray that Jesus will return now? I would really like that. <laughs> I don't really know if I have that kind of influence, but uh, I would love that too. Because we're, I think, feeling more and more a bit that we are sojourners. And this isn't our everlasting true home, even if it's the place God has chosen for us at this moment. And I also, I hope as we've gone through this series, as we wrap it up today, that we have been surprised and encouraged as we've made Christ's connections. Hopefully that's been the most 
soul life-giving to you. Christ's connections in Genesis along the way, connections in how Abraham was sovereignly called out by grace to go to a strange land, leaving behind the familiar to bless the world. As Jesus went out from his home to our strange fallen land, earth to bless the world. Christ's connections. Jesus goes out and does that. Abraham rescuing Lot, interceding for the wicked cities, pointing to our rescue and our intercessor, Jesus. Christ connections. The faith to obey and go to offer up Isaac, his only son, only to be stopped by God, the God who would truly bring the knife down on his own son. Christ connections. The unilateral covenant whereby God said, after cutting up the animals, you remember that strange story? And God passed through them like a fiery, fiery uh, image, not asking Abraham to pass through, saying to him, I will keep the covenant. And even if I fail, I'll be the one. Cut me in two like these animals if I don't come through. But and Abraham, if you don't come through, I'll still take the punishment. And we know Jesus was cut in two for us. Christ's connections. It's been a timely book, I hope, for you. And you know, I get to get up here every week and um, share with you and the entire congregation here online how I've been impacted by the story, but you don't get, really get that chance, do you? I mean, maybe in life groups you do a little bit. I want you to have that opportunity. Um, so we'll get back to that at the end of our morning today. But I want you to have that opportunity too. But right now, we look back on the life of Abraham as we consider this death uh, at this passage, his death at this passage, that reminds us of three primary themes we're going to look at today. Three primary themes in Abraham's life, themes that really are just as much a part of our lives as well. His life was a mixture, here they are, of faith, failure, and grace. Faith, failure, and grace. But even as we look at Abraham, as we have been these last months, we are also going to look through Abraham, past Abraham, even as Abraham himself did, to the day when all the promises of the covenant would come to fruition in Abraham's seed. Who's that? Jesus Christ. So let's start with our first big theme of faith as you get your outline out and have your Bibles open to this passage in Genesis 25. Let's look at our first theme. Abraham lived a life that was increasingly, increasingly characterized by faithful acts of obedience. It's our first theme, uh, faith, in the life of Abraham this morning. You know, almost every chapter, from chapter 12 up to 25 where we are today, shows us an amazing act of faith done by Abraham or Sarah at times too. Let's, let's think of some. By faith, he leaves his homeland Ur. He leaves behind some of his family there to go out to a land he didn't know in chapter 12. Chapter 13, by faith, he refuses to take the better land, leaving it to Lot, his cousin, because he knows God has promised my family this land, my descendants this land. Chapter 14, by faith, he entered into a war with mighty kings to rescue Lot and his family from kidnapping. 
By faith, he received the covenant promises of God. Promises that would have descendants as numerous as the stars and sand. And through his descendants, nations and kings would come. Thereby being a model for us of justification by faith alone. That's chapter 15. Chapter 18, by faith, he intercedes for the wicked cities, trusting the character of God as he does. Chapter 21, by faith, he laughs in awe that at the Isaac blessing, the son of laughter. Chapter 22, by faith, then he goes to offer up that same son as a sacrifice, knowing that God could even raise Isaac from the dead. Chapter 23, by faith, he buries his bride as a sojourner in this strange land, making the claim, this will be our land. God has promised it. And now here in chapter 5, at the age of 175 years young, right, (laughs) he crosses the finish line well with his last acts of faith. So where do we see his faith in this short little account of his death? I think we see it in verses 5 and 6. Let me read them again. Take a look if you've got your Bible. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. He gives the inheritance to Isaac, and then he gives gifts to his other children, and he sends them away. He sends them off to the east, Moses records in chapter 25. How are we to interpret this as an act of faith? Really, that's an act of faith? How is that true? Well, one reason we've already seen and been told multiple times in Abraham's life that Isaac specifically Isaac, of all the children, is the chosen one. Genesis 17, 19. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. This is the one child, Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And then chapter 21. For through Isaac shall all your offspring be named. Isaac is the covenant child. The family line and the blessings would all come through Isaac's line, including the Messiah. It's through Isaac's descendants, through the names, the name of Isaac's people, through whom this this blessing will come. So Abraham is wise. He sends off his other sons away, much like he did Ishmael. Remember Ishmael? Hagar, he had a child with, his, with Sarah's servant, much like with Ishmael. He wants to avoid any misunderstandings or opportunities for conflict at the end of his life between his children. Do you know what time, a time in life when many families experience some of their greatest strife? It's at the time of the death of their final parent. Some of you can maybe relate to that. Not only is there the grief of the last one of the generation passing away, but there can be tension and and, and awkwardness and sometimes downright division over the inheritance as well. 
if it's not done well. Plenty of family has divided relationally even as they seek to divide the property. Abraham wants to avoid that. So by obedient faith, he sends the others away. And now those others, they were given gifts and they become nations in their own right. As in the book of Isaiah, he mentions the Midianites and some of the others, speaks of them coming, returning to the homeland. But it's Isaac who's been given the covenant of grace. It's Isaac. It was God's sovereign, free choice to choose the one child to bless, even passing over the others in some way. He had every prerogative to do it. He was the miracle child, the child of faith, while the others were children of flesh. He wasn't the oldest. Ishmael was. He wasn't the smartest, probably, the best-looking, but he was a neon-flashing sign that God's salvation was of grace. Even in the Old Testament, completely a work of God as he called out Isaac. Isaac no more deserved it than anyone else. The same for his pagan father who was called out of a child-sacrificing culture in Ur. Do you think Abraham, uh, Abram deserved it? No. Isaac's the future deposit Abraham is making on the saving of the world. It's an act of faith here. And he's putting all his chips in on the promised boy. He's all in. Now, this would have been really hard. We don't want to gloss over it and just say, well, he seems kind of callous or he just, you know, no, it would have been really hard. It was hard when he sent away Ishmael, wasn't it? This would have been hard too. And what looks like favoritism is actually a final act of faith. In old age, faith in God's plan of salvation for the world and the promises he'd been given his whole life. He's faithful until his death. This is a great challenge for us, a huge challenge for us. But in particular, the theme of the last couple of weeks has been faithful obedience into old age. This is a challenge for our older saints as we look at the end of Abraham's life. Like Nick said last week, do you remember? If you have a heartbeat, you still have, do you remember? A mission. If you have a heartbeat, you still have a mission. Now, while I'm sure Abraham had retired in the sense of probably the daily labor on his land, of course, seasons of life change. This passage shows us he had not retired from living his life of faithful obedience and promoting and pushing forward and using all his might to advance the mission of salvation. He didn't retire from that. In fact, I believe, actually, that the older you get, actually, and the more you're able to let go of some of those daily responsibilities of a work day, the more your life can be filled up with obvious, intentional discipleship in your life, your family, your extended family, and your local church. I believe I was the last person... Uh, who knew Mary Weber to see her alive. 
Some of you don't know her. Maybe you do. She served here for many years. I believe it was a Friday. And I was in my office working on my sermon. And I was the only one at church here. And I heard someone come into the office and get some things and kind of go out. And I knew that on Friday, Mary would often come, I think, to put out worship folders and probably get ready for coffee and stuff. And I heard somebody in the office, and I just assumed it was her. You know, Mary Weber... She was faithful in so many ways. Even as she aged, she served as a deaconess, quietly made the coffee on Sunday mornings, washed towels in her home when we had the shower ministry, loved her family well. And I never went down that day or even out into the office to say hello on that day. It was just Mary was there a lot of Fridays. I said hi on a lot of Fridays, and I didn't that day. I would have. If I knew it was about to happen, she drove by my office window and I waved, Mary, 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 you know, waved out the window, which I've done to a lot of you at times when you go by my window. But she didn't see me that day and she was on her way to the store, I think, right after doing some work at church where I think she passed away a few minutes later, actually. All that to say, she was living a life of faithful obedience Right up to the end. Right to the end. She refused to retire from the life of faith. I'm so thankful for Mary or many other of our senior saints here at Bethany Church who live like Mary, who refuse to to retire from the life of faith. We have many. But what would it look like If all of us, not just our senior saints, but all our senior saints and all the rest of us, what would it look like if we all lived that way? Investing in the mission of Jesus here and in our community and investing in the next generation. What would it look like if Robin or David in our children's and youth ministry had so many, were flooded with so many volunteers that wanted to impact the life of the next generation, securing for them like Abraham did with Isaac, passing it on. How about your grandkids? I know you watch them, you take care of them, but when they come to Grandpa's house, do they know that they're going to hear about Jesus? They're small, easy, powerful things, ways you can drip your faith into your life, as Abraham did all the way to the end. Where are you trusting, obeying, expressing your faith as you age? Can you point to some places? Could you point to some if someone asked you? If you're not sure and you're confused, like, I don't even know how to do this, email me, call me for some practical ideas. Send me an email this week. Abraham finished well. He refused to retire from the life of discipleship. We're looking at three big themes. Three big themes that showed up in the life of Abraham and that show up in the final passage of his life. The first one was a life increasingly characterized by faithful acts of obedience. Here's our second. Abraham's faithful obedience was mingled with failures of faith. We've been talking about this all along the way in Abraham's life. 
while he was a man of great faith, he was, he was also a man whose faith was mingled with great failures. He was a mixed bag. So that even at the end of his life, I think Moses highlights here two of his failures alongside his faith. The first one is this, the taking of another wife. Look at verses 1 and 2. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him all those kids. Nick Nick already read them, so. (laughs) Well, you might think, what's wrong with that? Sarah has already died. There's nothing wrong with a widower taking a wife, is there? Or a widow taking a husband? No, there's not. There is not. But most scholars agree that this is probably not in chronological order here. And that this taking of Keturah as a wife does not point to a time after Sarah died, but during her life, and that of Hagar too. Now, we don't know for sure, but there's a couple good hints here. The plural use of the word concubines is one, not even concubine, concubines. And the fact that Abraham would have had to have six sons after the age of 147 almost makes them sound more miraculous than Isaac's birth, doesn't it? I mean, think about that. I mean, God could have done that, but along with the word concubine there, this is more than likely a relationship from earlier in his life. Mentioned at the end of his life for the purpose of recording the descendants' names. Now, there's no necessarily a judgment given here, but as I said, the word concubine is used, and, and Keturah, her, her sons and she are sent away with gifts. We've got to talk about this for a minute. Polygamy. Polygamy in the Old Testament. It was a common cultural practice at this time. What is it? It's the marrying of more than one woman. And for some reason, it is at times... It seems almost to be tolerated by God, even though it's never endorsed. Never endorsed. You have to hear that. It's nowhere endorsed in the entirety of the Bible. God's original design is clearly, from the beginning, one man and woman to marry. It was not Adam, Eve, Dinah, and Rebecca, was it? No, it was Adam and Eve from the very beginning. And Jesus himself in the New Testament speaks of the goodness of one man and one woman being joined together in marriage. I don't know why God didn't instantly put a stop to it at different times in the Old Testament when he could. But we do know the representations of polygamy in the Bible all point to it causing family strife and trouble and friction. It's not God's design. It's not portrayed positively at all. And here it isn't either. Keturah, she's sent away with possibly other concubines. And they're not given a place of honor to be buried at Machpelah with Sarah. Think about that. Abraham's failure mixed in with his faith. That's the first one here. Here's the second one. Ishmael is back. Ishmael is back. Now, we're certain about Ishmael. We're speculating a little bit with Keturah there, but with Ishmael, we know he represents Abraham and Sarah's failed attempts at trying to produce his own heir with his servant girl, Hagar. 
He's a sign of Abraham's fear, his faltering faith, his self-trust, his self-reliance. But this is actually what I love about the Bible. It shows humanity with all their warts and flaws, doesn't it? This is not an airbrushed, whitewashed version that has been recorded for us in posterity that Moses records here. No, the Scriptures present real men and women with their faith mixed in in a big bag with their failures. And it's the same in the church life too, isn't it? Our lives, this resonates with us. But many times we haven't created a safe church culture where failure, sin, can be addressed and dealt with. There's no one perfect at Bethany Church. We all know that. And too many times we can present the Christian life as if it's just about always seeming like you have it together. Always putting on a smile for Jesus. Always putting forward your best foot. Doing everything we can even to cover and hide, cover over our tracks of sin. Maybe it's denying failures in parenting or marriage or, or friendships or relationships or th- on a staff level at church. All kinds of things that can happen. How do we know this? If you're in a life group, which questions cause the most times of silence and crickets in the room? Which questions? We love when we, if it's about the text. If I can give a right or wrong answer, if I can go and point to, well, yeah, it was Sarah and she did this. Yeah, Abraham, that moment when he went after the the kings, that was just a brave moment. We love answering those kind of questions. But as soon as you say, where do you struggle with this too? Crickets. (laughs) Silence. We almost haven't been given a dialogue, a way, a vocabulary on how to process and work through and admit sin and confront sin and repent of sin. Somehow we've been led to believe that the church is the place to keep quiet about our struggles, our sins, and failures. And the Christian life is not about denying our failures. It's about facing them head on and then turning back to Christ in repentance and faith. It's the reason we give time for silent confession and repentance at church at times. This is the work the gospel can do. We have the resources in the gospel here at Bethany Church to defeat the sin that dwells inside of us. Sweeping things under the rug never does anyone any good. And you know what it does when we do that? It denies Jesus and the gospel the opportunity to do the work in our community. We hide things or sweep them under the rug Confronting sin in others, as hard as it is, and I know that as a leader, as a pastor, we're admitting our own sin is the right thing to do because it highlights for us again our need of a Savior and our ongoing need of the gospel. We've got to have fresh exposures of our weakness and, and failures to experience fresh opportunities for the gospel to do its work. We have to be able to do that. Not put on a a front or a a posture of 
having it all together, even while we celebrate real growth and holiness. I'm not talking about a phony self-deprecation where that's kind of become really popular where you just say, hey, I'm broken, this is my broken mess, just accept me the way I am. No, no, no. We acknowledge it, repent, and turn back to Jesus, all the more committed to living for Him. When we admit our failures. Abraham's failures, they didn't destroy his faith, did they? We get to see a lot of them. We get to see a couple really big ones here at the end. In fact, they don't destroy his faith. They strengthen it as they expose again his, needs of, his need of God's grace. That's what it does. Our failures point us back to God's grace as we're reminded of the provision we have again in Jesus. That's what it means to live the life of discipleship in a community. We're not striving to be perfect people, but people of faith. People of faith. What failures today paralyze and plague you? Everybody in this room has at least one. Can we, that's safe to say, right? Everybody in this room has at least one failure or fear that just, just paralyzes you. If I admit this, then they'll really then they'll really know who I am. But do you know something? There's nothing you could admit that Jesus, has, Jesus hasn't already paid for. There's nothing that could be revealed about you to this congregation that Jesus doesn't already know and hasn't already died for. That's the safety and security that the gospel gives you. The ability to be real and honest and transparent, not for the sake of flaunting our brokenness, but for the sake of allowing the gospel to do its work in and through us to the glory of His work, to the glory of Christ. What would it look like? Again, as we ask that question today, if Bethany Church continued to grow this culture of battling sin together, admitting our flaws, confronting sin in others at times, that's actually loving to do. Do you know that? If your motive is not one of self-righteous judgment, but of restoration in the gospel, it's actually loving to confront sin in others. To just be nice and sweep it under the rug, that's actually a self-preservation of wanting to just be liked. Do you know that? I just want to be, not be seen as a mean person and liked, so I will risk really highlighting the horrible thing that was said that really hurt me. What would that look like? creating a community that used our failures, like Abraham's are right here, our failures as the black backdrop against which the gospel of Jesus and his work would shine. That's what we want to see happen. Rather than maybe hide and pretend nothing is wrong. What would it look like if you're able to admit your sin against your kids, your wife, your husband, your friends, your brothers, your sister, and seek forgiveness? How would that shine on the work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection? Well, Abraham's failures, they have been paraded before us, haven't they? They haven't been hidden. They haven't been whitewashed. They've been mixed in all through the story of his life of faith so that grace would shine. And that's where we end today. We're looking at these three big themes. The first one is Abraham's life shows us his faith his failure, but now grace. God's grace towards undeserving sinners in both life and death. And that, thank the Lord, 
is the predominant theme of Abraham's life. We've seen it all through his life, but now we get to see it at his death. That grace is greater than his sin and than all our sin. Abraham's whole life was driven by grace. His entire life was driven by grace. Grace called him out of a sea of humanity to take on the mission of God. Grace drove him out of his old home in Ur to a new land. Grace promised him nations and kings and a savior for all people to come from his line. Grace promised him this miracle seed, this son that would come from his family. Grace was given as he interacted with the surrounding nations as a stranger in these foreign lands. You've ever traveled in a foreign country? You know how awkward and uncomfortable it can feel. Grace went before him as he walked as a foreigner amongst a foreign land. Grace, even in his fears and in his, his failures, he's a record, Abraham, of God's grace. He was never cast off by God. In fact, God called him in spite of his sin, his weakness, and his failures to show that the power was in God, not in Abraham. And the nations would come from this man would be more numerable than the stars. Look at verse 8 as his life ends. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. Abraham dies at a good old age. Older than any of us will make it, for sure. (laughs) Full of life, it says. Have experienced much with God, gathered into His people to await the resurrection, I think that implies, from the dead. This grace is too, even His death. Do you remember this? He was promised this by God in Genesis 15. 15, you'll see the verse. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. We see the promise here fulfilled at the end of his life, as Moses reminds us of it, in peace at an old 175-year-old age. God has kept his promise right up to the end of Abraham's life. And he's been gracious to Abraham from start all the way to finish now. But here's the great thing. Abraham's life is the story of the Bible. And Abraham's life is the story of your life if you're a follower of Christ. Grace from beginning to end. From Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph to to Judah to Moses to Joshua to the judges to David and Solomon. It's God's grace working through the lives of His people. That's the predominant theme. Even in their judgment... Even in their captivity, God's grace is still working. He never abandons them. He will never abandon you. Never. If you are a follower of Christ, Abraham's life is is, is proof for us in that. 
God even worked in their judgment, their captivity through the rise and fall of of Babylon, of Assyria, of of Greece, of the Roman Empire. There There are no whitewashed lives in the Old Testament. From beginning to end, they are stories of grace because God is the hero. Abraham's actually not the hero. God is the hero of this story, the center of this story. And then grace in the New Testament. Finally, finally, the seed arrives. Thousands of years after Abraham's death, to this small, dingy corner of the promised land, to a forgotten people, a people occupied now by Rome, their, their best days behind them, Jesus comes. Jesus comes. And then he, even after he comes, the promised child, he lives in obscurity. Isn't that amazing? For like 30 years. Until he finally starts to begin to speak of a new kingdom. A, a kingdom of repentance and, and faith that it takes to enter in. And everybody's confused. They're all freaking out. Who is this guy? What is he saying? Where has he come from? What's his purpose? What does he want from me? What's he trying to get out of this? And then one day he stands up, up in front of the religious leaders of his day, and he says this. We'll see it popping up. You got it? There it is. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. They understood exactly what he was saying as they lifted stones to kill him. But do you understand today? Do you make the connection today that Jesus was saying, I am the seed of Abraham to which all the promises point, and yet I'm the Lord of Abraham. Even though I'm his descendant, I existed before him. I'm the grace of God to Abraham, the fulfillment of what was once a barren woman and an old man. I'm the gospel. I'm the big story of the Bible. I'm the one to trust in, the one who will defeat the snake sin and death so that you can be open with your sin without fear, your failures, and find true forgiveness in me. I am the one, Jesus was saying. Do you rejoice to see Jesus' day as Abraham did? Do you have the marks of a life that is a mixture of faith and obedience and, 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 and failure and grace all mixed together with the overarching comfort of God's grace to you. You can today if you don't. Repentance and faith. As, as Abraham's failures were shown and he turned back to God, we do the same today. Acknowledge your sin, turn from that, and turn to Jesus and embrace him in faith. That can happen today by trusting him. If you're not sure if you look towards this day with the joy that Abraham did, come talk to me afterwards. 
Come talk to one of our elders. Jack's sitting up here. Lauren's over there. We've got a couple guys. Come talk or talk to somebody that brought you today or who you know. My prayer for us, my longing for our church is that we would be men and women of faith who, who, who fight our failures and sin with the gospel of grace. As we look through Abraham to the one who was before Abraham and yet was born after Abraham. Kind of odd, isn't it? But that's our Jesus. That's him. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Look past and through Abraham. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the true author of our faith. Let's pray. Christ, we thank you for your words. We thank you that we can wrestle with the idea that Abraham looked to your day and he saw you, rejoiced in what he saw there. How that all works out and the depth of what he knew is somewhat of a mystery to us. But he knew the Messiah would come. He knew a Savior would come. And Lord Jesus, we've seen you. We live post-resurrection. And for that, we have so much to be grateful for. So much fuel in the gospel to be honest, be transparent, be open, and continue to grow in this faith and in the gospel. So Christ, do the work your Spirit will do in us and through us as we look to you as the author, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. Grow us as men and women of God, we pray, and even give today a new faith to someone who's never trusted you. We ask you to do that work, Jesus, in your name. Amen.